0: Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now.
1: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. And every week here, we will explore uh, questions and conversations from a Christian perspective, conversations with guests that we have, and questions where I hear from you with the questions that you have about, really, anything that you're thinking about. uh, Really easy to do. Uh, Just send me your question to questions at russellmoore.com. And I'll do my best uh, to answer them. I won't say your name unless you tell me to. So I'm not going to be, um, uh, you know, putting you into a difficult situation, especially since the things that we're going to be talking about are often really personal uh, sorts of uh, struggles that people are having. So I won't tell people who you are unless you want me to. And so we're going to go through just a, a variety of questions that have come in. And one of them is a question that has happened uh, over and over. It's come into me over and over and over again in different sorts of iterations. So this one is coming from, I'll call this person Leslie, uh, whether that's uh, a man Leslie, Leslie Nielsen, or a woman Leslie, like Leslie Note. Chose it because Leslie Note, because this person is in Indiana and is writing to say, uh, what do I do? Person says, I'm in a very red state. And apparently, this is someone who's not a uh, fan of uh, Donald Trump, former president of the United States. And the church is. And apparently, that's a big deal at the church. A lot of conversation about uh, Trump and Trumpism. And um, Leslie is saying, What do I do? Do I leave? Do I stay? Um, what do I do? And and thinks that maybe I would have some <laughs> experience with that sort of question. You know, the, a lot of the questions that have come in along these lines, they're not all about uh, politics. Some of them are. Some of them are about Trump on either, either side. Some of them are about um, questions over gospel and justice. Uh, some of them are over a lot of pandemic-related uh, things, masks and uh, vaccines, and, and those sorts of controversies are going on in the church. But even some others, I mean, there was a, a woman who uh, came to see me who's a pastor in a mainline uh, Protestant denomination, although her church is Orthodox. Um, and so she came to me. She said, "Look, I know that you and I would disagree on women's ordination, but just help me to think through: um, Do I leave when the denomination has become uh, much more theologically liberal than what than what I really can can advocate? Even though my congregation is kind of sheltered from that." And she said, "And additionally, I I, I suppose I just know that I'm not going to have as many opportunities." Um, if I'm in a, a more orthodox uh, denomination in her tradition that would also uh, have um, complementary views on women's ordination. So she said, just, just forget the argument over women's ordination and just help me to think of how does anybody make that decision about whether to leave or to stay. So, you know, a lot of these questions because there's so much division going on right now. And so uh, people are, are kind of looking around and seeing um, from 2016 to 2020, Jonah um, you know, Goldberg would talk about uh, invasion of the body snatchers where people you 've known for a long time are suddenly saying things completely opposite of what you've uh, always thought and and I would say that comes really from from multiple perspectives, not just from not just from one so for those of us who, Aren't on board with uh, Trumpism. Many of the people that we've known for years would say, "What? What happened to you? Why? Why aren't you?" And then vice versa. So there, there's a lot of that going on, and it's it's sort of bleeding over from kind of cable news, social media, on into um, kitchen tables, dining room tables, and uh, sadly, uh, the Lord's table uh, as well. So. How do you know when it's time to leave? Well, here's what I would say. It's hard for me to answer that question when I don't know any more than I do about the particular uh, congregation. So what I would say is if you're in a congregation where you have different views on uh, political or or cultural or social issues, um, maybe you're in the minority on those viewpoints. That doesn't mean you should leave as a matter of fact, what I would say is the default should be to stay. Doesn't mean you always should stay, but I'm just saying the default. Um, So that you're, you're not making the decision constantly about, am I to stay or not? Instead... The, the decision is, is this a situation so extreme and so bad that I, should, uh, that I should leave? So a couple things I would say. These are not, in any of these cases, thus saith the Lord uh, kinds of, of answers. These are just things I think are, are, are helpful to sort of think through. One of those things would be how much of, uh, of what's going on in the congregation is just the viewpoints of the people there, and how much of it is a confusion with what the actual mission and message of the church is? So, in, in saying that, I think if you're in a congregation where maybe you're a you're a pro-Trump person and um, most of the congregation is anti-Trump, or you're an anti-Trump people, a person, and most of the congregation is pro-Trump, that's not necessarily um, a bad situation. Uh, that it would be different though. If it's more than just the viewpoints that most people hold, and it's actually what the message of the um, of the congregation is, this is this is our confusion as to who we are. And I would say a second thing is how much of this is mandated on your conscience? So there would be a difference between, I think, being in a congregation where you have a minority viewpoint and being in a congregation where your viewpoint, um, your viewpoint has to be shifted and changed through some sort of cultural pressure or bullying that's going on in the congregation. And certainly uh, if it's some sort of spiritually abusive uh, use of authority, but that that really applies to, to everything. I mean, I've, I've talked about uh, here before um, having to admit, a couple years ago, I was writing a book that my favorite holiday is Halloween. And I gave the reasons for that. But it was something I never would have really said in many other contexts, but apart from people I really knew. Well, because in most congregations that I've belonged to, that would be a really controversial thing to say. And most people in most of the congregations that I've served would have thought of Halloween as being a a pagan holiday at best and maybe a satanic holiday at at worst that doesn't that doesn't bother me that I have a different viewpoint on that and it's not anything I ever would have left a church over um, unless I, I had been in a congregation that said you know if people are to be a part of this church they have to uh, repudiate Halloween um, I think that would be a, a step of authority that moves into authoritarianism, even on something that doesn't matter, um, much less on things that actually do. So I would, I would just just ask how much of that is, is on your conscience. And then also, would you feel comfortable inviting a, a, a non-Christian or maybe a struggling uh, Christian to come to your church, um, and and not in the sense that you're saying, oh well, I'm afraid of what people would say in the, you know, as we're going out the, the door at church. But generally, if if you could bring someone and what you think would be uh, delivered to that person is a clear presentation of the gospel and of discipleship, then that's a good metric in favor of uh, of staying. If uh, if not, then that would cause me to really wonder why would I not want someone to, to be here. And then the final thing that I think would be uh, important is to say, what, what is this doing to me? So am I in a situation where I can be in a congregation where maybe I have a different viewpoint than most of the people there? But I'm able to love them and I'm able to understand uh, where they're coming from. Or am I in a situation where I'm starting to become combative and I'm starting to become bitter? Now, uh, again, that doesn't necessarily solve the uh, solve the question because you may be uh, needing to repent of being bitter and and um, and cynical or or combative. I mean, the Bible's constantly saying, don't be quarrelsome. Um, but you also don't want to be a situation where you are uh, you are putting yourself into a place of constant vulnerability. if that's a place of your vulnerability, of being tempted toward, cynicism or uh, confrontation. And it might be, if that's the case, you might say, I'm actually not able to serve these people uh, the way that they deserve to be served because of uh, these differences. And so maybe I need to start thinking and praying about being somewhere else. It's just, it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to, to think through. And it's it's sort of a sign of the times that we're living in Um, we're living in times where these things have become such identity markers that everything is divided. And that sort of brings me to another question that someone asked. Uh, Someone had listened to uh, the episode, uh, the conversation that I did with my friend David French, talking about issues of, uh, he raised some issues of potential civil war. And, um, this also came up. I had David uh, in a seminar that I teach a- out at the University of Chicago on religion and politics and culture. And the, the Civil War question came up uh, from a student. And what what I said to them is, you know, if if I had even heard this talked about five years ago, maybe even two years ago, I would have said, come on. This is an exaggeration. We have problems, we have a divided country, but we're not at the point of uh, civil war. Now, I'm much more fearful of, uh, of that sort of descent into violence. And here, here's why. I mean, um, one of the reasons is, it is not just that January 6th happened. Um, and that some of the things such as uh, the, the Portland uh, violence happened. It's how easy it was for people to rationalize. I'm, I'm hearing people who are saying, well, I'm not for an insurrection, but... You have to understand when people are pushed up against the wall, these are the things that are going to, to happen. Or, well, I'm not for violence and, and burning a city down, but you have to understand sometimes desperate times call for desperate measures. I mean, that worries me and scares me. And also because when I'm having conversations with people um, at sort of the elite governmental or, or media ecosystems, I'm even hearing there um, not an advocacy for any sort of violence or or civil war. I don't think I've ever heard that. But I have heard people for whom that idea is becoming more normal. So even just having the conversation, do you think we're headed towards civil war? I mean, that's we haven't had that conversation in my lifetime, in any serious way. And when I'm hearing it happen more and more, it does concern me, which is one of the reasons why we as, um, as the people of God, as the people of Christ have to be the people who are, uh, not falling for this sort of, um, violence as a lesser of two evils, um, kind of mentality, or, uh, what I talked about in the in the newsletter uh, a couple of weeks ago about this idea of using spiritual warfare language um, to our perceived cultural or political opponents. I think that's really, really dangerous. What it does is it causes us not to understand what spiritual warfare actually is. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But it also enables, just as if you can, you can see the language uh, historically that people start to to use there's a there's a way to try to dehumanize people uh, as a first step toward violence so uh, think of the the language against almost every persecuted group uh, Jews or Roma people or uh, others um, even even right now uh, language toward the Yazidis or uh, or the Uyghur people, there will often be this metaphor of people as animals, as rats, uh, or as diseases, as as viruses to be to, um, uh, to be eliminated, or as as devils, uh, as, as demons. Well, why? Because if you can take the humanity away from someone, then you can justify acting violently toward them uh, in a way that that. That enables you to try to find some justification and some way to see yourself as doing something uh, good. Um, and so that's a really, really dangerous place to be. and when you start seeing that happen i'm i'm getting I'm getting nervous about it and I, I think that um, that we really need to be spending a lot more time teaching people how to live in polarized times without Um, compromising their integrity in terms of becoming the kind of person who would carry out um, bloodshed or or who would justify others who would. You've got to get that before. When it gets to, James Davison Hunter uh, wrote the book, he, he wrote on culture wars and then the next one was called Before the Shooting Starts. And I remember thinking when that when I first read that book, you know, that's a little overstated. Maybe he means this in a metaphorical way. I don't think it's overstated now. You've got to change the way that we see one another before those acts of violence really become uh, become widespread so that there can be the, the kind of repugnance at that where you see that and you say, this is not uh, the kind of behavior that is acceptable for someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, that By the time you get to the moment, it's it's almost too late, not, not that you don't still have a responsibility to, to call it out, but it's almost too late to change it by that point. So we need to be doing that now. Uh, Sammy uh, writes in and asks about uh, all of the scandals that we have seen in recent years. Um, I'm assuming that Sammy's talking about uh, Ravi Zacharias and Mark Driscoll and, uh, you know, fill in the blank. There's so many of them we can't even uh, list them all out now. And, and Sammy is asking, does, should this cause us to think that we ought to have more rigorous ordination standards? Um, and my answer to that would be no. I think we ought to have uh, rigorous ordination uh, standards. We shouldn't lay hands on someone quickly, as the Bible says, and those who are to be teachers receive a a severer, uh, a a harsher judgment. Um, The book of James tells us we ought to have really high standards for ordination, but that's not going to fix it. And here's why. I mean, for one thing, a lot of the people who are involved in these sorts of scandals are not uh, ordained in uh, churches or communions or traditions that um, th- that really have a very rigorous form of, of ordination, so they they could almost uh, go around that. Uh, similar to back when I was a kid, Jimmy Swaggart uh, was a um, morally fallen uh, evangelist in the Assemblies of God. Uh, he was disciplined, uh, rightly, by the assemblies of God. And he just picked right up uh, because he was in a tradition that didn't need ordination in order to continue on with the ministry. He just went went on. Now, most, most sorts of uh, religious sectors in the United States are like that. So I don't think that would answer it. And also because I think that if we say, what are the rigorous standards for ordination? A lot of that is going to be in terms of doctrinal questioning. Uh, do you have the right doctrine? A lot of these people, um, most of these people have had pretty good doctrine, um, at least on the sort of uh, Nicene Orthodoxy kinds of uh, questions. And, and even when they don't, they can, they can parrot out good doctrine. Um, and if you ask them questions about sort of character and standard of life, these are people who know how to give answers uh, to that. I actually think the the most important thing about ordination is not that it's going to be a fool, foolproof way to sort of sort out bad actors uh, from the church, although we ought to we ought to certainly try to do that. Um, but more the kind of community. That should come with, uh, with ordination. The, the, the emphasis that uh, you no longer belong to yourself; that you're now a, a servant of the church, and that's a that's a universal church body of Christ sort of calling. But it, but it's also very specific and local. So I have hanging on the wall over there, right over my shoulder over here uh, my ordination uh, certificate from Bavis to Baptist Church 19, uh, August 6 1995 and one of the things I remember about that uh, that ordination in my Baptist tradition we had um, an ordination council of uh, the ordained men uh, in the church and then in the in the broader community who would question you Um and most of what I remember are not the answers that I gave, or even the specific questions about doctrinal matters. As much as it was, I can see the the names of the people who are on that certificate. So John Schmidt and Walt Racy, and you know these names of people who were um, who were people of great integrity and 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 loved me, um, many of them not living now, maybe most of them not living now. But I think there's something that whenever maybe there would be a temptation to betray my ordination vows, um, I can think of them and and think of what did they expect of me and, and what did they entrust to me and sometimes, if it's even difficult to think about standing before God because of the way that you're you know you lose your way, you get confused, you can think about those people. I think that that's uh, the the community aspect of it is is maybe the most important. I mean, I think of <laughs> at my ordination. Uh, in my tradition, we would kneel. Uh, the the uh, ordination candidate would kneel at the front of the congregation, and the ordained um, men in the congregation would come by, lay hands on you, and pray for you. So, typically, would lean over and just sort of whisper in your ear as they're praying for you. And so, you you really didn't know who most people um, were unless you recognized their their voices because you're, you're looking down. And I remember one um, one person. Puts his hands on my head and says, uh, if you ever need anything, call me 555 2 and gives his phone number. And, you know, I kind of chuckled at the time, but that uh, over the years is just really endearing to me uh, to think about this, this guy who, who loved me, wanted to help me, was genuinely a sincere, um, I'm here if you need me. And he was. Um I actually think that's that's what we need.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Russell Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash Russell Moore.
0: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection
2: of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
1: 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on.
2: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much.
1: I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there.
2: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as
1: they come all in one place. Max asks about critical race theory, CRT. Um, You know, I'm tired of talking about critical race theory, not because I don't think it's an important topic, but because I don't think it really is a topic in most of the places where it's coming up. So I talked about in, um, I did a seminar uh, for the Big Tent Initiative at Christianity Today uh, for my uh, colleague, uh, Ed Gilberth, Gilberth about um, about CRT with a panel of people and said at that point, I'm not someone who um, advocates or believes in critical theory uh, really a- across the board. I do think that there are some Important questions that often can be raised uh, by some of these uh, theories. Questions that we can uh, then answer. But I'm not an advocate of critical theory. But that's not really what the debate is, because you have many people. It seems to me, who want to use the language of critical race theory as a way to um, a way to circumvent a concern by the church. For racial injustice. And so that's why when you see the way that people are defining uh, CRT, uh, it's it's usually in the in a church context or, or even in often in a school board context is usually uh, in terms of systems that that there that there are injustices that can happen through um uh, systems that are set up by human beings, but systems that perpetuate those injustices, those sorts of questions well that 's not Crt that 's Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jesus and James I mean that that's not uh, that 's not CRT that is saying that, and I can see many of the people who are using the CRT uh, language at least in the Um, in the world that I've been living in, who often are the very same people embracing the lost cause uh, mythology of the Confederacy. And their views on all of those things well predate uh, CRT as a point of discussion. And the people that they're often using those arguments against, people who are advocating for uh, for, uh, racial justice and reconciliation, have also uh, been doing these things, long predating any, uh, uh, any conversation about CRT. Also is, I think, really disingenuous when you have people, for instance, who are saying, well, uh, we can't learn anything from a, a, a viewpoint that comes from a godless origin, um, who are making that argument with writings from atheists. Not just not just atheists who don't have faith, but atheists who have written books saying that theism is um is, is shouldn't even be taken seriously enough to argue with, and we should just let it die and move on. Now, do I think that there are some things that we can learn from atheists? Of course. Um, there are many things that I learned from from atheists. I think that um I think that God reigns on the just and the unjust sends rain upon the just and the unjust. I think that there are um, that, that there's a Romans 2 um, uh, conscience uh, and a kind of insight that belongs to people as created in the image of God. But you can't simultaneously say, you can't listen to uh, people with uh, non-Christian views outside the church and argue that from Non-Christian people from outside the church. So I really don't think it's, I really don't think it's often even a, a good faith sort of con- conversation. Um, and then beyond that, it it doesn't really mean I- anything if you're if you're talking about CRT in most of these contexts any more than the word legalism. Uh, you know, there will be people who will often ask me about what do we do about these legalistic uh, churches? And, and you know, usually the first thing I do is to say, okay, well, tell me what you mean by legalism. Legalism is wrong. And uh, the New Testament speaks really clearly against legalism. But often what people mean by legalism is uh, any commitment to holiness, uh, or uh, any commitment to obedience. Well, that's not legalism, but if that's, if that's the meaning that people are giving to it, you're, you're not going to be able to actually have the same conversation. Or for a while, there would be many people who would ask me about hyper-Calvinism uh, and what I think about hyper-Calvinism. Well, I think hyper-Calvinism is a heresy. Uh, Hyper-Calvinism is the uh, idea that, uh, that there's not a well-meant offer uh, free offer of the gospel to all people. It, it usually includes this idea that uh, before someone can can come to faith, there has to be this um, this sort of working in the heart where one is adequately convinced that one is elect because of the, the the sort of conviction of sin that one is is under. Those sorts of things. That's that's a heretical and anti gospel idea. But what many people mean by Hyper-Calvinism is just uh, people who are really convinced of Calvinism, of Reformed theology. And so if, if I were to uh, not define what Hyper-Calvinism is, but simply start saying uh, we've got to stand against Hyper-Calvinism, knowing that most people, when they think of that, are just thinking of basic uh, Reformed theology, um, I, I would be doing something actually deceptive. Uh, even though I'm totally opposed to hyper Calvinism, uh, and even when I think that there are um, that there are some slippery slopes with uh, some people moving from Orthodox Calvinism into hyper Calvinism, if you just say uh, these people are hyper Calvinists and we should stand against it, you're doing something that's deceptive and sometimes intentionally uh, deceptive. So I think that CRT is not. Um, is not a a truthful or adequate framework in the sense that uh, Tim Keller wrote this critique of um, of critical theory that I think is I would agree with uh, almost uh, completely that there are um, there are legitimate questions and legitimate phenomena that can be identified. By critical race theory, in the same way that um, Marx is someone who holds to a a really awful uh, sort of uh, worldview, but he is right on some things that um religion, for instance, can be used as an opiate to to prop up the people in, in power that's that's a legitimate insight that doesn't mean that what Marx is arguing, that it always functions that way. Um, or uh, there was a little book um, several years ago from um, PNR publishers, I cannot remember the name of it, but it was about Foucault and about uh, an understanding of power. It was a critique of Foucault, but it also was saying there are some things that he did see about the way that power can work. And here's, here's how that's consistent with what the Scripture says. And here are the ways that he got this very wrong in dangerous ways. I think that's, um, I think that's the way that we ought to uh, approach it. So in Keller's, um, in Keller's writing on CRT, I think he was, he was right to sort of um, come in with an act 17 sort of approach, which not only says, here are some legitimate things that uh, critical race theory theorists are pointing out here's how that is consistent with what we see uh, in in scripture and here are here are ways that crt doesn't actually function coherently on its own terms so for instance if if um, if everything is a conflict between oppressors and uh, and the oppressed then what happens then when the oppressed uh, have have power and are the the oppressors? Then I mean, h- how do you ever get to some understanding of uh, of what the truth is and what reality is? I may mean, think those are good and valid uh, critiques. I just think the problem is that CRT has become a way for uh, often bigots and then those adjacent to bigotry uh, to be able to justify. Uh, what they're doing without having to say, "Here are my, here are my actual views on race." I think race is not something that the Bible is addressing, or uh, if it is, we we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't take this to the the step of saying, "What does actual justice look like?" That's where I think the the real problem is when it comes to a lot of this language on CRT. So, when someone asks me about CRT, first thing I usually say is, "Well, what is it?" I said that to one guy one time, and he said, well, it's, you know, whatever you are. Uh, because he was seeing CRT as being uh, any understanding of, um, of systemic sorts of injustice that may be there. And I said, well, if it's whatever I am, then yeah, I would have to be CRT, because that's sort of the, the circular definition. I'm not CRT. Um, and and here's, here's why, though, some of the things that, uh, that, that people who would be, in a critical race theory framework are nonetheless identifying some things that are actual problems. We don't need to adopt all of their assumptions in order to answer them, but we do need to speak to those things and to answer them. I have someone who wrote in about um, purity culture, which is not language that I typically like. Maybe it's, maybe it's the same as CRT, but I've found is a, a lot of people when they say purity culture... What some of them mean, anyway, is uh, any kind of teaching on responsibilities that we have in holiness in the in the sexual uh, arena, which I think is is just for someone who holds to biblical authority, there is no way to have that viewpoint. So much of the Bible is speaking about sexual integrity. Um, think of 1 um, Corinthians uh, 6 and 7, uh, for instance, and and the, just the repeated mandate towards sexual holiness. So if someone's saying purity culture and what they're really meaning is an emphasis on purity, then I would say that's that's not what what purity culture is. What usually, though, if people really know what they're talking about, what they mean by purity culture is a number of things. I mean, one of them being... This um, message that can come to people that says, if you are a sexual sinner, then you are contaminated. Um, uh, and, and sometimes that tends to go with a kind of almost prosperity gospel, sexual prosperity gospel, where if you uh, if you preserve your sexual integrity, then you are... Uh, going to be blessed with marital happiness and, and so forth. I've even seen people, I've written about this, people who um, are really distressed because they're people who, who have been um, faithful uh, before marriage. And then when they find themselves uh, engaged to or are about to marry someone who had not been, even when that person's a repentant uh, follower of Christ um, I've seen people who have said, you know, this isn't, they don't word it quite this way, but it's almost along the lines of this isn't the deal that I signed up for. Um, why did I keep myself um, holy in these areas and this person didn't, uh, you know, as though, as though this is some sort of transactional arrangement. So if that's what someone means by purity culture, then yes, the New Testament and the Old Testament, the Bible devastates that completely. Uh, Or what some people mean, and I think this is what this uh, listener means, is this idea that the way that uh, that men's sexual uh, holiness is dependent upon women. Uh, removing any possibility of temptation uh, from them. So the idea being that men are almost uh, uncontrollable in terms of their, or at least past a certain point, uncontrollable in terms of their sexual impulses. And so a a woman is to blame for the way that she dresses. Um, and, and so forth. That also, I think, is completely contradicted by, uh, by Scripture. There is, there is no sense of blame for uh, men's um, unholiness and, and certainly not their predation upon women. Even in the, the passages that are speaking to modesty, I mean, obviously, there is a, at least some understanding of what modesty is um, I mean, we we understand that we we don't we don't go around nude uh, for for a reason. Uh, but most of what is being spoken to in terms of modesty uh, in the Bible is not speaking so much to are you showing too much skin, um, as much as it is talking about uh, status showing. Don't don't wear costly. Attire and jewels, uh, for instance, but dress modestly. Uh, so I think that there's, I think there's a sense in which um, it's easy to absolve people of their own responsibility by finding villains or finding temptresses that are responsible for. Um, other people's sins and I don't think that's an, an accurate uh, an accurate way so if the, this person is saying you know I've got these concerns about purity culture but then what do you say about uh, issues of, of modesty and I guess what I would say is um, are there going to be some situations where people are not dressed appropriately whether men or women yeah Um how do you address those things? Well, usually it's going to be a situation where maybe you have somebody who's new to the church, um, somebody who's who's trying to figure out how to uh, follow Christ. In that case, I wouldn't address it uh, right now. Um, I, I would say, everybody, let's bear patiently with this person. Let's cover first things first. Um, and then there may be times where someone says, you know, that's not really an appropriate thing to wear. But never in the context of if you, if you wear this, you are responsible for, um, for other people's sin. I, I don't think that that is the case. Um, a young pastor wrote in and he said, this is kind of a nerd question. <laughs> but do you have a system for organizing your library? Um, kind of. Uh, I know there are people who organize their books by color. These are awful people, and uh, don't be one of those people. I'm I'm joking, but kinda joking. Um, so I do have a system, but it's not uh, it, it's not detailed in terms of there are people who have sort of Library of Congress uh, designations. I don't do that. So what I do is organize things by category. So I'll have, I mean, I'm, I'm looking right in front of me, I have uh, presidential biographies. I have those together by general time period. So FDR and Truman are all together and Washington, Adams, Jefferson are, are all together and, and, and so forth. But... There's not a rigorous sort of alphabetization or anything like that. I just generally know. Here's the area, and I generally know where where stuff is. So uh, over here, um, this is mostly philosophy and then theology, and that'll be in categories of um, Christology or uh, humanity or sin or eschatology or whatever. But then within that, Things could be anywhere, and so if I just know the general area, usually I can find it. I would just say, find what works for you, and um, and 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 do it that way. There's some of you who don't need physical books at all. Um, you use just um, just digital books. That's fine. If that works for you. Uh, it doesn't work for me because I have to have sort of notations that I'm making to myself and and so forth. And I kind of need the physical book. But that's just that's just me. Find find what works for you. Okay, we have a, a letter from an Anabaptist. I think this is a Mennonite um, who is saying, uh, do you know Orthodox Anabaptists and what do you think about them? And uh, wants to know, should I, should I stay in that community uh, or should I try to leave and go somewhere else? Okay, well, take, take the staying, leaving question uh, off the table. We've already sort of uh, addressed that in in the more general sense. Yes, I know a lot of uh, Orthodox Anabaptists. As a matter of fact, my mom is in town. We were just talking about um, my ancestor uh, going back. I don't. It was the late 1700s, I think, uh, who was a Mennonite uh, who left um, Switzerland and uh, came to um, came to Pennsylvania. Uh, ended up but was apparently a very devout uh, Anabaptist pacifist. Um, the, his entire family was uh, massacred, um, and he didn't he didn't fight back because of his convictions. And some of the family were separated, and some of them were were killed. So. Yeah, I've got a family connection to some of that, and I know a lot of really faithful Anabaptists right now. So, uh, Plow Quarterly, for instance, is a is a magazine. It's wonderful. Uh, it's a group of, um, I don't know, maybe you would say high tech Anabaptists. Uh, so, would have a lot of theological commonality with Mennonites or and Hutterites and other. They're called they're called the Bruderhof. Um, but they're not Amish. They, they, um, they, they have Wi-Fi and they're, they're, they're publishing things and doing videos and podcasts and, and whatever. But really exceptional people living in, in community together. I would say with, with Anabaptists, like, like with everything else, there are strengths and strengths of emphasis that come with the Anabaptist tradition that the rest of the church needs and there's a shadow side to everything. Uh, everything has a, a, a shadow side. And one of the potential uh, shadow sides that can come with, um, with an Anabaptist view is sometimes an undue separatism, uh, sometimes uh, a dire sort of view of, uh, of the outside world. But that's not necessarily uh, endemic to it. And you're not going to have any tradition where you're going to be free from uh, those sorts of of shadow sides. So uh, it it may be, and we, I mean, I I quote this all the time because I think it is so clearly true. uh, What uh, Richard Mao said several years ago about these different denominational, for lack of a better word, traditions, traditions. being like monastic orders that are part of the the body of Christ, but with a particular vow to emphasize certain things. So the Baptists are here to emphasize personal regeneration. And the Lutherans are here to emphasize justification through faith. And the Anglicans are here to emphasize the importance of uh, liturgy. And they're doing that for the benefit of, of the broader church. So the Anabaptist tradition, I think, is, um, is here to emphasize um, the radical nature of the Sermon on the Mount in a way that we, we all need to know, especially because many of us in American evangelicalism are uh, liberals when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus. We, we do to the Sermon on the Mount and the other teachings of Jesus— what the old modernists would do with the virgin birth uh, or the, the resurrection of the second coming, which is to say, well, can't really mean that. So um, we can, we can uh, ignore it, see it in super metaphorical uh, kinds of ways. Um, the Anabaptists are here to emphasize, no, Jesus meant to deliver to us this word of, um, of not reviling back, of uh, turning the other cheek um, and so forth. So even when we would disagree on say, what's the, what's the role of the state? Um, that's a, a powerful word that needs to come. I was really grateful. There's a man that I respect a lot, Ron Sider, who's um, Anabaptist. And um, uh, he is somebody who would disagree with me on some things related to pacifism and I really admire him because even though I don't agree with him on everything, he has been willing to show integrity and not, uh, even though he's in a, a very uh, politically progressive uh, sort of tribe, he's, he's held to. Uh, what he believes is right when it comes to abortion and marriage and sexuality and these sorts of issues that would be really easy to downplay or to to get rid of in his context in a way that we all should do, regardless of what our particular um, tribe or position is. And I really liked the fact that he came, I had him come to Evangelicals for Life, which was an event that we would do uh, every year coinciding with the March for Life that was seeking to take a a broad coalition of people uh, for human dignity. And Dr. Sider came in and he was talking about uh, abortion, the right to life, um, about how uh, all the way back uh, to the the very beginnings of the, the Christian movement after Pentecost, one of the distinctives. Uh, is a refusal to sanction abortion or infanticide, a, a caring for vulnerable infants in a way that was countercultural. And then he went on to really critique those of us who are pro-death penalty in some way or the other or, or who think that there's a, a legitimate use of, of war and explained uh, why he thinks that killing is wrong in every case and context. Well, I don't agree with him on all of that, but I certainly need to hear that. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the burden is on those of us who do think that there's sometimes um, a, a case for state-ordered violence to be able to explain why that fits with what Jesus uh, taught us, um, not the other way around. And so the idea that, oh, this is ridiculous— is a really dangerous place. I think we need the Anabaptists to, to teach us this, just as we need uh, the, the Reformed to teach us about uh, calling and cultivation and the goodness of creation and the sovereignty of God. Um, we need that. We, we need the Arminians uh, there to teach us about um, the, the need for personal decision and for evangelism of every creature. I mean, we need all those things uh, together to hold one another accountable uh, within uh, the church. All right, I had I have several other questions, but uh, I have already gone on too long, and so we will get to those questions later. I want to remind you, send your questions in to questions at com, whether they have to do with Bible and theology, whether they have to do with uh, some of these polarization questions that we're talking about, uh, whether it has to do with, uh, with personal ethics or, or church ethics or social ethics, whatever it is, questions at Russellmore.com and I will answer them for you if I can. And I also will try to say, I don't know when I don't know. And there's going to be a lot of things I don't know. And then sometimes I'll give an answer and it will be wrong. And I'll see that later. So that's, that's, that's part of it. So thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. Uh, it really helps other people to find the show. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes with some resources for you and send the podcast along to a friend, someone that you think might benefit from this conversation. Be sure to check out Christianity Today. Uh, become a member at uh, CT, where we are uh, lifting up the sages and storytellers uh, of the global church for the sake of a a beautiful uh, orthodoxy uh, to give to the world. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to the Christianity Today Public Theology Project's Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a
0: production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Production assistance by Core Media. Beth Gravencourt serves as coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer. Audio mixing on today's episode by Kevin Duthu. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. Administration for Christianity Today by Christine Kolb and Pam Vodanova. If you like what you heard on today's episode, make sure you subscribe to catch the upcoming episodes. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear.